The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. Actor Matthew Perry, one of the big stars of the hit sitcom Friends, has died. He was just 54 years old. Law enforcement sources confirming with News Nation Perry died of a heart attack today while in a hot tub. Yeah, sad news that you're waking up to this morning that Matthew Perry has died. The Warner Brothers television group, they were responsible for producing all 10 seasons of Friends. They put out a statement that says the impact of his comedic genius was felt around the world and his legacy will live on in the hearts of so many. This is a heartbreaking day and we send our love to his family, his loved ones and all his devoted fans. Ironically, that may not be exactly the tribute that Matthew Perry would have wanted because he himself wrote about, to some extent, wanting to distance himself from friends. He said, I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life. I'm still working through it personally, but the best thing about me is that if an alcoholic or drug addict comes up to me and says, will you help me? I'll always say, yeah, I know how to do that. I'll do that for you, even if I can't always do it for myself. So I do that whenever I can in groups or one-to-one. And I created the Perry House in Malibu, a sober living facility for men. I also wrote my play, The End of Longing, which is a personal message to the world an exaggerated form of me as a drunk. I had something to say to people like me and to people who love people like me. When I die, I know people will talk about friends, friends, friends. And I'm glad of that. Happy I've done some solid work as an actor, as well as given people multiple chances to make fun of my struggles on the World Wide Web. But when I die, as far as my so-called accomplishments go, it would be nice if friends were listed far behind the things I did to try to help other people. I know it won't happen, but it would be nice. So that was Matthew Perry in his own words and uh, uh, reports emerging. Obviously, we don't know the the definite cause of death yet, but it appears to uh, be that it was a heart attack in his bath overnight. There'll obviously be a lot of questions asked about what was the ultimate cause of that because thanks to his own memoir, which he wrote last year, or which he published last year, it was revealed just how much he had struggled with drugs and alcohol and with addictions over his life. He was very frank, he was very raw about the kind of uh, challenges he's had. He described friends uh, when he was in it. Uh, He he talked about not being able to recall an awful lot of it. He talked about the physical damage that his addictions had taken on him, I think at one point having to have 14 operations to repair internal damage caused by the level of uh, pills that he had been taking. And he talked about now the sort of the struggle, as you heard even in that piece there, to try to stay clean. But in the midst of all of that, a huge amount of people who would have been big fans of his through all of the things that he did. But of course, friends central to that because for a generation it was the defining TV show. So we'll talk more about that later in the programme when we get the latest on what we know in relation to the passing of, of Matthew Perry. It's also, it's one of those sort of, you know, the, the sort of, what is it, the sliding doors moments when you look at somebody like, when you look at the cast of one programme, on the one hand you have a Jennifer Aniston healthy, well, making millions in the morning show on Apple TV. And on the other hand, you have Matthew Perry struggling um, to get through the challenges that he had. And very sad life beyond that. He actually talked about how, to some extent, his own move into LA and his move to acting was to try to reconnect with a father who had headed in that direction and left him feeling alone and somewhat destitute. Very tough life. Anyway, we will talk about that uh, later on. To happier things. It was funny driving in uh, this morning in through the centre of town. Every now and then you see crowds in in Dublin City and normally when you see crowds it is linked to some kind of celebration. You know, it's Patrick's Day and everybody's wearing green hats or it's um, some kind of street carnival and, and those 
chaos and mayhem and the, the town is getting mopped up from the night before. Never have I seen such a fit-looking and well-organised crowd. 22,000 people, all wearing sort of weird mesh bras stuffed with Lucasade and, and high-sugar sweets, all of them with numbers on their chests. I've never seen so many knees, 44,000 knees visible, minus, I think, maybe six, because the Dublin Fire Brigade, in a fit of extraordinary bravery, have decided not only are they going to run the Dublin City Marathon, but the people who are running it are doing it in full bunker gear and all their personal protective equipment, which must be some extraordinary challenge because that stuff is hard to move in, never mind run in. But the marathon, of course, is underway and it has been going out in phases with the elite athletes going first. And already we're getting a sense of whose separation of men from boys and women from girls in the uh, elite phases. And then... The less elite, um, all the way down to the ones dressed as who knows what towards the end. And the finish line is going to be staying open through until I think five o'clock uh, this evening. But we'll probably see the elites crossing the line, I assume, in the next half hour. I am no expert in this. Thankfully, we have somebody with us who is. That is uh, Lizzie Lee, Olympian and ambassador for the Irish Life Dublin City Marathon. Good morning, Lizzie. Good morning, Anton. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm told you have already done a run yourself this morning. Is that true? I did a run this morning. Yeah, I did a bit of a course recce. I wanted to remember exactly what Roebuck Road felt like, the heartbreak hill of the Dublin Marathon. And I ran out that way and I ran down the gantry and it is an ideal day for running in Dublin this morning. Lived in Dublin for nine years myself. And there isn't a puff of wind, which I would take over a little bit of drizzle any day of the week. Um, it's just ideal. It's flat, calm, beautiful. The sun is just coming out. The uh, lead runner now is in Kimmage, um, the lead male. And you said there about when they'd be crossing the line, it's looking like 10.53 and we could be on for an Irish Life Dublin Marathon course record. He's on target for uh, a low 208, 208.06 is the course record there. Um, it's a beautiful day. And then the women, there is six in the mix in the women. The, the man, leading man is Kamal Hassan right now. And then six in the women and they are in Temple Oak area. Um, and they've gone through Crumlin and uh, there's six of them and the defending champion is in the six and they're all looking very good and it's very cagey. So it's a much, uh, uh, we, I, I, I couldn't predict right now what's going to happen in that women's race, but the men's race kind of looks sewn up. And so not possibly in a record. Possibly in a record. The women aren't going to run a record, but the men, he's close on it. His own personal best is from the Dubai Marathon when he won it in February 20809. And the course record is 20806. But he uh, he went through halfway in just under 103. So if you do the maths, you multiply by two. And he looks on camera like he's sped up. He looks really good. So there could be a, a Dublin Marathon, uh, uh, Irish Life Dublin Marathon record going today, which would be outstanding. Now, I don't want to seem too parochial and, and focused on our own oh, personal no, interests in all this. Should. But have you any update on Kieran Cuddehy? Because I believe he's in there in the midst. I don't know where Kieran Cuddehy is. We might get somebody to look up the tracker for Kieran Cuddehy. Um, but uh, I can tell you about the Irish National Championships. So it's really important that this is part of Olympic qualification. So if you're Irish and you are eligible to run for Ireland today, there's bonus points on offer to get you to the Olympics. Um, and we have Stephen Scullion out there and he's leading the charge for the Irish male. He's the Irish marathon record holder himself. And he's about 50 seconds ahead of Ryan. Creech from Leeville, my own my own club, my own coach, everything. Um, that's Ryan Creech, who has the fastest time by an Irishman this year. And then we have another Ryan, Ryan's fourth scythe, who's running a debut. It's 
it's a very good path to getting to the Olympics. So there's a lot on the line today here for these three Irishmen because there's bonus points for the Irish National Championships. And then in the women's race, we have Anne-Marie McGlynn, who is 12 weeks older than me. She's 43. She's going for her first ever national title. Um, she's a stalwart of Irish athletics and she has gone through halfway. She's going to run something around the 232 mark, which is outstanding um, in the Dublin Marathon. So, um, And then we have Gladys Gagnon, who I think is going to run a, uh, an F45 record herself. I'm looking at Kieran Cuddehy here now and he's gone through 10k in 50 minutes, Anton. So he's out there and uh, he's, he's, he's grand. 50 minutes is running. He's not jogging. He's properly running there now. So uh, so well done, Kieran Cuddehy. Yeah. Well, fair play, Lizzie, for you being able to get Kieran's numbers and we wish him and everybody else taking part the absolute best of luck. I really appreciate your time because I know it's a really busy morning for you this morning. That is Lizzie Lee, Olympian and ambassador for the Irish Life Dublin City Marathon. And I'm joined by Breda Brown, who is co-founder and communications director with Unique Media and chair of the Irish Writers Centre. Neve Marr, creative director with Journal.ie and Matt Cooper, broadcaster and author of the newly minted Who Really Owns Ireland? The sort of the second in the series from Who Really Runs It. Now we know who really owns it. Matt, before we go to the break, you have something of an expertise in marathons, having followed an elite runner yeah. around the world. I'm a bag carrier of marathons, <laughs> basically. My wife Aileen has uh, run the Super Six, which is in New York, Boston, Chicago, London, Berlin, and she finished it finally this year after we couldn't get to Tokyo in Japan because of COVID for a number of years, and then they didn't open up for foreigners. But she finished the Super Six back in March. And I've had a great time. I've travelled the world to some of the great cities, carrying the bags, celebrating afterwards while she has gone through the pain and endurance of running the 42 kilometres or 26.2 miles that it is. But they're phenomenal um, achievements on behalf of the athletes, but they're also great social events. There's a great buzz around the streets. There's a lovely feeling Uh, in the city this morning. Some Some cities are better than others. London is terrific. New York is absolutely wonderful. Uh, Tokyo was great this year. Just the buzz out on the streets of people, the celebrations afterwards, everyone cheering each other on. They actually are terrific social sporting events. Well, we wish everybody the best of luck and even those... Sorry, my brother-in-law is doing it as well, but he's out on the course at the moment, John Hickey. But at you should have told me Lizzie Lee would have been able to give him his time as well <laughs> while we were at it. Okay, we're going to take a break, but after the break we're going to be talking about the um, what's making the news this morning, including uh, reports that the conflict has further increased uh, in Gaza with um, Benjamin Netanyahu describing it as Israel's second war of independence. And a worrying Red Sea poll from the perspective of the government because both main government parties down 1%. Sinn Féin now edging on being equal in size to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael together. Looking at the stories making the news today, prime amongst them a poll in the Red Sea which suggests that um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil together are barely larger than Sinn Féin. There's a, about a 3% in it, which is almost nudging towards the uh, margin of error. Neve, if you were a betting woman on this, does this mean that Ivan Yates is right and that we're looking at a 70-seat um, landfall or windfall for Sinn Féin in the next election? I mean, lucky for us, I am not a betting woman, so I'm not going <laughs> to go into that. But um, yeah, no, it's really interesting to to see the poll. I'm looking here on, on page 14 of the Business Post. You know, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think looking at the amount of heat that Stephen Donnelly is getting in particular when it comes to the 17% of, of voters saying that Donnelly needs a clean bill of health, I think that it's, 
it's not a good poll. I, I don't think that it's something that, uh, you know, the... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to say it's really disappointing, I would imagine, for the mainstream parties. So Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, because they would have expected a budget bounce on the basis of what did they give away there recently? 14 billion. And they haven't got it. Sorry, how, so, why would they have expected a budget bounce when last year they gave away 11 billion and it did nothing for their opinion poll ratings at the time. This year they put out a 14 billion. Yeah, it's 3 billion more. But there was no headline in the actual budget. There was a whole series of a whole lot of different things adding up which didn't actually create a wow factor which is what you've got to do in Now politics. to what extent is that because it was priced in before the budget came out that that was the expectation and therefore there was no exceeding of that No, there was no headline grabber like, and one of the mm. things that comes out very much in the Red Sea poll in the Business Post today which is editor Danny McConnell writes about is that USC, for example, was something that a lot of people get very worked up about. A lot of people said this was introduced as a temporary tax and that it would be rescinded in time as the economy recovered. The economy has recovered spectacularly to the extent that we're talking about surpluses of 45 billion plus over the next three years. And yet that tax burden has been barely reduced on people. Yes, there was a reduction in one rate of the USC from 4.5% to 4% at a cost to the government of 400 million euro. Big deal when it comes to most people and to the difference it actually makes. But can I ask on that, that every day? How much, of, yeah. how much of that is down to the budget failing to wow people and how much of it is that the budget is being used as the stalking horse for what is now an electorate tired yeah, of the well, current government? But this is it. And to go back to what Matt was saying, I think it, in the past it has given a post, you know, a budget bounce to parties. Last year and this year it obviously hasn't. Um, and the political landscape has changed quite dramatically. Like look at the figures with, with Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin are up one to 32%. Uh, as you said, Fine Gael down one to 20 and Fianna Fáil down one to 15. So Sinn Féin is racing ahead of the two main parties. So we can see the writing is on the wall in terms of, of, of where we're going uh, with, the, with the next election coming down the track. So from, from, from that perspective, you're talking about the USC. No, people didn't get potentially as much as they wanted. But the main mistake that the government made with this budget was health. Absolutely health. Yeah. They didn't give enough to health. They didn't mention health enough. Literally, I was looking at the at it when it was happening. I was going, where's, where, where's health? Where's health? There was no mention. There was about three mentions of health in the budget speeches this year versus last year where there was about 70 odd. And if we keep looking back at all the polls and everything that we have, what are people... Uh, most exercised about, as Matt says, what are they exercised about? And it's health and housing. Although um, in that context, Neve, the, the government, whenever this is put to them, point to record amounts of money being poured into the HSE and quietly brief the fact that Stephen Donnelly isn't, or the suggestion that Stephen Donnelly is failing to run things the way that he should. Absolutely. But I think the thing that you have to, to look at is the way people are preparing. So like in the Sunday Independent today, Wayne O'Connor is talking about the winter of discontent and he's saying, you know, that it's only October and the figures don't lie, that people are starting to prepare themselves for the winter ahead. You know, that they're saying that waiting lists are massive, people are on trolleys, people are knowing this, so they're going out and they're putting vaccinations as their top priority because they don't want to have to face the HSE when it comes into winter. So yes, you know, they they talk about things like, I mean, the USC, like Matt was saying, you know, I know that people were saying, oh, well, it's been a reduced from 4.5 to 4% and, and that's, you know, a really good thing. But I think the expectation from the voters was more. So everything about this budget came across as meh. 
just a bit meh. I think people were expecting and, and more. And that's interesting because I don't know then. We have to ask, why was the expectation quite high, I suppose, from the electorate? Yeah. Like, who set that? Who set that bar? Was it the political parties themselves? The was sea of kites Fein? that you couldn't see through, I think, yeah. went a long way towards I, getting that. So you, you know, also mentioned, Anton, that uh, you know Ivan Yates is projecting 70 seats for Sinn Féin in the election. I have to say, Ivan and myself are about to engage in a new project together. We still get on very, very well, having worked on television together. So I hope I won't be risking the ire of Ivan by reminding everyone. He said Fianna Fáil were going to win 60 seats in the last general election <laughs> and they got nowhere near it. I mean, Ivan's predictions aren't always necessarily the most accurate. They're entertaining and he has a great insight into politics. But I'll tell you one thing, the last general election outcome was something that nobody foresaw. So I take certain degree now, pinches on with these particular numbers. I mean, if you look at it, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil could go back into government together with some support from some well, of the let's Greens or someone else. Slightly. It would be tight. Uh, it would be yeah. tight. Let's look under the hood of some of what Ivan Yates is basing his predictions on. There is essentially a, a confluence of two or three things. The first of those being that there is a significant swing of support towards Sinn Féin that was undercapitalized on in the last election because they didn't run enough candidates so they have an easy yes. way to get more seats in that. The second thing is the demographic shift where according to Yates under 40s have all decided to hell with the civil war parties. We are now committing wholeheartedly to Sinn Féin. Do you not believe that those two things together equal 70? Uh, I don't know about the numbers, how they're going to add up with the new constituency. They may well do. All I'm saying is that expect the unexpected. An enormous amount might happen between now and election day. You never know what's going to happen. That said, the things he's highlighting, but, and this is very much a theme, very much again, of the book, Who Really Owns Ireland, which does deal with housing <laughs> and whatever and the rest of it. Oh, You're not bringing me in here on a Sunday morning without me getting an, an opportunity to plug that. I'll tell But it is an international phenomenon. Housing is an international phenomenon that no government in the Western world at the moment, seems really able to deal with. We are not alone in Ireland in having these problems of housing and of health. I mean, you just look at what's going on in Britain. The NHS is in a state of absolute crisis. And Sinn Féin talks about creating an Irish NHS. Well, maybe an NHS of the way it was 50 years ago. But sorry, do you want an NHS of the type that they have there now? The health system may be kaput or, well, not kaput, that's unfair to say, because when you get into the health system in Ireland, you get excellent service. It's getting in is the problem. But in the north of Ireland and in Britain, it's far, far more difficult to actually get the treatment. Then, Eve, what of when the government says, look at all of the challenges that we had to navigate? We had to navigate a financial collapse and the, the extrication of ourselves out of the Troika and out of the bailout. And we've done that and we're now the fastest growing economy in Europe and we're neck deep in cash. We've had to deal with the COVID and the implications of that and we did all that successfully. We've come out of this budget and we've had as big a giveaway as we can have within the bounds of what is uh, economic prudence and we've even gone slightly beyond that. What more do you want? Well, I... I mean, it's the defence, isn't it, that they're that they're always on, especially, you know, Stephen Donnelly. You can see it. You can see it today. Like, I reject the notion that the health service or the 150,000 people I'm privileged to lead are some sort of flesh eating thing on the public finances. So he's he's constantly on the defence and constantly saying, mm-hmm. look at what we've done with what we have and what we're given, I suppose. So... Uh, you can't, you can't argue with the fact that they're going to be on the defence and you, you also can't distract from the fact that Sinn Féin are, like Conal Thomas says in the Business Post, going to make hay on the fact that, you know, there wasn't this huge, massive 
injection into the health service or rather an injection of what the people expected. This is the thing. They're going to do. I mean, this is what politics is, isn't it? Sinn Féin will go into the election. We expect very much pushing a single word, change. Yes. That they Mm. represent change from the civil war parties that you mentioned earlier. But not only that they represent change, but that they can change the way things are done in health and in housing. And I wonder if that actually is possible, how they will be able to do that. Because if you look at the health system, for example, for the last decade, there have been discussions going on about the need for digital transformation. Just to take one simple Mm -hmm. thing, there has been, despite discussion after discussion, absolute failure to bring in a modern digital way of actually handling charts and prescriptions and just when people go to various parts of the system, you do that, you change things mm. dramatically. It has, there's been an utter failure to implement it. And I just wonder how any politicians of whatever party, when they get into power, how they can actually affect that Do you that think, change? therefore, Sinn Féin need to be... I mean, I think back to the, the last time we saw this, and left is a loose term, but the last time we saw a shift of this significance to the left was that Gilmore for Taoiseach Labour wave. Mm-hmm. And that famous Tesco uh, ad and what they would do became such a stick that they got Mm. beaten with subsequently. Is there a risk for Sinn Féin in the same that at this point they need to pivot towards a little more lower bars? Well, I think in fairness, they've already started that because there have been various Sinn Féin people who are saying that it will take two terms in government to affect the change that's required. So they're effectively going to look for a 10-year mandate to buy themselves time. And remember, change for change's sake is not always the best result either. You know, and the other thing to bear in mind with, with Sinn Féin is none of them have ever been in power before. None of them have held a ministerial role um, because they haven't been in power previously. So when they come in, as Matt said, and you are you know, now dealing with the civil service and the public service, um, so there's a huge amount of, of issues there that they won't be able to come in and make changes and click the, click the switch and like the next day and change Every government comes to power thinking it can change They can things. do that and every government minister previously will, will say that to you. So, I, so what, so you think they will get ground down by the permanent government? Well, I think... You know, if it does, they're saying now that they've polished their language a little bit more in the last little while. They've moved a little bit more to the middle in terms of trying to sway the voters that aren't 100% sure which way they want to vote because they need them on board to get them into power. Um, But once they get in, they will realise it's not as easy to make these changes. And it could be two terms, but then what's that? That's 10 years. Mm. So are the Sinn Féin voters who have voted for them going to be happy to wait 10 years? It's the usage of how... They're talking about the families. This is health. This is the real impact that it's having on people's lives. Mary Lou MacDonald is saying to the Taoiseach, your decision will have a real impact on families who face the biggest challenges, families that need government to fund major improvements in the health service. And this is the thing. It's it's when you're looking at the health service, there can't be 10 years. It, we can't wait 10 years for this kind of change because people are dying. And Sinn Féin itself is changing. It's moderating its position mm. through opposition in relation to particularly economic issues. Yeah. And also, it was significant recently that when it had amendments rejected on its, uh, when the government's bill in relation to what was going on or the motion in relation to what's happening in Gaza at present, when it had the various amendments rejected, it voted with the government's position in relation to Gaza. It's almost unthinkable that it would have done so even five years ago. So there's a considerable shift in Sinn Féin moving more towards a centrist position 
which is putting it at odds with the parties of the left. Now, it may be that in winning around 70 seats in the next election, it will cannibalise the parties of the left, but there still may be seats for certain individuals that it will want to depend on. But those parties on the left may reject Sinn Féin on the basis that it has moved too much to the centre, to being almost a 21st century Fianna Fáil. I, I see you beginning to accept Ivan's figures in your, your <laughs> assumption of the seven. <laughs> I'll give him that. <laughs> <laughs> One final thing before we move on, because we do want to talk about uh, Ukraine. Um, the There is reports, and we get this now every week, of rifts at Cabinet and mm. the, the HSE obviously and Stephen Donnelly being the latest rift at Cabinet combined with the issue of payments to Ukraine. Do you put any stock in that? Look, you know, ministers are always blamed for, for everything when things don't go right. Um, the poll in the Business Post today, uh, 50% are saying that Stephen Donnelly is doing a poor job. 20, 17% are saying he's doing a good job, but nearly one third are actually quite neutral. So it's either yes or no, you know, they're, they, they don't really have a view on him. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's sort of quite interesting. And again, he'll be looking towards the next general election, obviously next year, in terms of trying to hold hold on to onto his seat in Wicklow. And that whole constituency is going to be changing as well. But there's always rifts in government. Um, and the other conversation here is how well Donnelly, um, Minister Donnelly, is getting on with Bernard Gloucester, the current head of the HSE, whereas previously Paul Reid, um, you know, famously didn't get on previously with, with, um, with Minister Donnelly. So look, I think, you know, personality are hugely important in terms of trying to get things done, I suppose. And if people can get on, that makes it a little bit easier. We'll, we'll be obviously talking about it later on in the, in the show at, at greater length. But what's your reaction to the, the uh, news that Matthew Perry has died and the nature of it? Very, very sad. Um, clearly a guy who's had many, for all the fame and fortune, had a very troubled life as he documented in his autobiography, which was only a year or two ago when he came out and Obviously, the, the Friends thing was a fascinating. I'm of a similar age generation to all of the cast of Friends, so I would have grown up with that as well. And I remember seeing it for the first time in the States in 1990s and watching it all the time. And I've been fascinated by the way that I've even seen all my own kids as teenagers all watch mm. the Netflix reruns. Do they? they yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's extraordinary how it's actually oh, it up. It. Well, And I wouldn't say necessarily no. when you watch it now, as a late middle-aged person, <laughs> uh, you would sort of say, well, OK, some of those jokes weren't as funny as we might have thought they were at the time, or the setups or the situations. And I suppose even as it went through the years, it became a bit more cliched and a bit more obvious. But that's not to forget what a cultural phenomenon it was during the 1990s. And yeah, the kids got into it and they seemed to get into the whole thing, I suppose, just the relationships thing, the sort of the fun life. It was it's actually quite interesting to see how it actually has managed to transcend. But he obviously, it didn't do a lot for him in some respects. Now, we, we have to be, be, be careful because, it, uh, sorry, I'm not suggesting you have to be careful, Matt, but I think we in the discussion, because it is easy if you talk about the kind of challenges that he had to infer into that, that they were responsible for his death, which we don't we know. Don't know. We point. don't know. No, we it's... don't know the cause of death other than that he, it appears at first glance to have been a heart attack while he was in the bath. But we don't know what the cause of, of that heart attack was. But when you then look at his life, by it, it, looking at his own memoir particularly, Neve, the kind of struggles that he went through were horrendous. I mean, 14 different operations yeah. to deal with the damage that he, he did to himself with drugs. Well, it started so young for him. You know, he was in a jet ski accident back in 1997. And, and from that, he spoke about in his book that he was prescribed 
painkillers, opioids. And, you know, this is obviously uh, was happening a lot in America in the 90s with Big Pharma. Um, and he got hooked on it. And then it was basically, you know, the guts of 30 years of, of, of struggling with this. And, you know, he was so talented and he was at the absolute height of fame. And he, he speaks about it, which I always thought was really poignant and sad, that he doesn't remember moments of friends. There was series that he doesn't remember because of his addictions. And he actually judges them on his weight. He talks about how, oh, I was definitely on pills during that series because I was so thin and I was actually abusing alcohol in that series because I was so overweight. So he doesn't remember. And it it was always sad to reflect on such a cultural phenomenon that was Friends. And like Matt was saying, it has garnered a whole new audience because of streaming services mm-hmm. now. And the thing is, I, I hope that he's going to be remembered for, you know, his brilliant comedic timing and his wry wit and literally just how funny he was and how talented he was as a man. Unfortunately, a lot of his struggles have have been quite open and so that will always be a part of the conversation. But there's also a sense, Peter, with those kind of things that when somebody writes the memoir, it comes after all of the problems being solved. But I'm not sure that's the case with Matthew Perry. It's often not the case with an awful lot of people who would write their memoir from that scenario. I think it's nearly a a line in the sand for them. But the, the issues aren't always solved as we as we have seen and I mean the guy was a hugely high achiever as well he was he's Canadian um, and he was a high-ranked junior tennis player in, in Canada back you know I think in his late teens and in, in his early 20s and he went to school with Justin Trudeau who's the, the Prime Minister of Canada but interestingly which By I, the way, I should say just as an aside he in his memoir says that he bullied Justin Trudeau which of course one should not do but he bullied Justin Trudeau up until the point, and I quote, that he ended up in charge of an army, at which point he He's decided stepped to bury away. the He stepped away. But did you know he was in the West Wing? Yeah, I remember him yeah. in the West and Wing. And yeah. he won two Emmys yeah. uh, for being in the West Wing, which I hadn't realised until mm. I read this morning. He won one Emmy for uh, Chandler in, um, in Friends and two Emmys for the West Wing. We do need to take a break, but just to let you know, Matt, um, uh, report on the uh, NHS, because you were saying that the NHS mightn't be the model that we might want mm. to emulate at current. As a regular user of, of the NHS as a text, it has deteriorated in recent years, but from a very high bar. It's still light years ahead of the HSE in terms of service, modern hospitals and results. A lot of the people in Britain would not agree with that. I take it if that person is getting... Uh, service from it then good and if they're getting good but then a lot of people would say here in Ireland the problem is getting access to the services but once you get access here in Ireland that they are excellent the standard of care is superb Uh, As we mentioned earlier on we are in a situation in the Middle East where Netanyahu has described it as Israel's second war of independence and we are being told by the Israeli Defence Forces that Israel's top commanders and soldiers are now on the ground in Gaza and for the first time, we see a situation where um, ground troops are remaining in Gaza rather than doing incursions and then returning uh, by daylight. After the break, we're going to be discussing uh, that and we're going to be getting the latest from Tel Aviv. Of course, the conflict in the Middle East is making the front pages of an awful lot of the papers. The Sunday Times leading with this is Israel's second war of independence. Netanyahu vows to destroy Hamas and rescue hostages amid global backlash after 24 hours of bombing in Gaza. And it seems not just global backlash because there there seems to be the uh, nascent signs of protest within Israel itself. Hannah McCarthy is with us. She's in Tel Aviv. Hannah, there have been protests on the streets. Is that right? Yes. So uh, last night uh, I went to a protest that was held in Tel Aviv. Um, 
it was primarily um, for uh, families of the hostages. They were very concerned with the escalation that they had seen in the war over the last kind of 24 hours, 48 hours, um, because of they feared that it would reduce the chances of ever seeing their loved ones, you know, return alive. Um, so they were out kind of protesting. Not They were not necessarily there calling for a ceasefire, but they were definitely calling, you know, for a cessation while, so that there could be, you know, some sort of political solution, you know, an exchange of prisoners, um, Palestinian prisoners for the hostages. But there was also kind of, you know, s- small groups of people calling for a ceasefire, holding, you know, ceasefire now signs uh, and, you know, chant- chanting ceasefire now. And that's kind of the first real signs we've seen of a kind of, you know, anti-war. I don't necessarily want to say movement because it's, it, it's really not that big. But, you know, it is, you know, a sign that there is, you know, some opposition still within Israeli society to the war. Meanwhile, there have been further warnings to residents in Gaza City to move south ahead of of, uh, planned bombardments. What's the military picture looking like in Gaza? So Netanyahu has, you know, described Israel as entering the second phase of the war. Uh, we've seen an escalation in the in the physical presence of Israeli soldiers within uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, there was kind of reports online that uh, soldiers were seen, you know, two miles within the strip, which is quite a significant um, location for them to be. Um, there have been lots of kind of, you know, um, questioning uh, over the strategy that Israel would have in the Gaza Strip. It's going to be urban warfare. It's very difficult uh, to fight that type of, of um, to fight that type of military campaign successfully, particularly if Netanyahu is serious about trying to get the hostages back alive. Uh, we also saw kind of a worrying trend in the south uh, of the Gaza Strip where, you know, uh, over um, about a million and a half Gazans have fled uh, where they're just not getting the aid they need to survive. Uh, we saw an UNRWA, uh, which is kind of the UN agency responsible for Palestinian refugees in the Gaza Strip. Their warehouse was kind of raided by, you know, desperate Palestinians who took wheat and basic hygiene supplies. So, you know, it's a very worrying situation there at the moment. Hannah, thank you very much for that report. Um, that is uh, live from Tel Aviv there, reporter Hannah McCarthy, freelance journalist based in Tel Aviv. It doesn't sound, folks, like this is any of the international pressure. I mean, you can have all the UN resolutions you want in respect of uh, humanitarian ceasefire. It seems to be having absolutely no impact in Israel. It's horrendous. And, you know, even going through all the papers today, uh, there's a huge amount of coverage in, in all the papers, but just the humanitarian trauma um, that we can see in terms of the photographs um, that are in the papers are just desperate. I mean, the front page of the Sunday Times has a woman who's cradling the body of her her baby, you know, and, and we need to not forget that that that's the reality of what, what is happening here. Um, and I'm just reading here in the Sunday Independent, um, Barry, this guy called Barry O'Halloran, is an interesting Q&A around the geopolitical tensions intensify at a time of living dangerously. And it just tries to give a little bit of context, I suppose, and a bit of an explainer for people who are finding it hard to get their head around, like, why is this happening? What happened? What's the historical context here? Um, that, that sort of is quite helpful. And I know there's some in some of the other papers as well. What do you make, Matt, of the manner in which Israel has, it appears, squandered the level of of international support it would have had at the outset? Because we can't lose sight of the fact that this started with a terrorist atrocity. This started with a, a terrorist atrocity of significant historical magnitude. 
And already we are at the point where when you look at that UN vote, other than the US and a small mix and gather of about three other countries, every other single country voted to say you need to stop what you're doing. And even the US, when Joe Biden went to Tel Aviv in the aftermath of that, as you rightly say, horrific, barbaric atrocity, did warn about a disproportionate response in the same way that America reacted emotionally rather than rationally to 9-11. And then certain actors in the United States as well very cynically took it as an opportunity to pursue other aims, which is why we ended up with the entirely wrong invasion of Iraq on the erroneous basis of a link to 9-11 and to the having weapons of mass destruction. And we fall prey at times to the propaganda that comes out and about the various machinations of bad actors. Uh, So while there was an enormous amount of sympathy amongst most people for Israel after what it experienced, it is not anti-Semitic, as some Israeli government people tried to say, to say that what Israel is doing in response is wholly and entirely wrong. That the children of Gaza are entitled to life every much as the children of Israel were entitled not to be murdered by Hamas. And the extent of what has been done to date, there have been a multiple of people killed in Gaza. And what is going to happen as a result of this ground invasion that has happened in the last couple of days, leaving it aside, as Breda rightly says, from the politics, the humanitarian thing, it, this is just wrong. And that is why so many people in this part of the world want ceasefire because it is entirely wrong. Now, the politics are exceptionally difficult. Mm. There is an understanding that wrong has been done to the the Jewish people because of the Holocaust, which led to the establishment of the Israeli state. A lot of wrong has been done to the Palestinian people, displaced. There is a desperately difficult political situation that seems intractable, despite efforts that have been going on for decades. But leaving the politics aside, the response of Israel in the way that it is killing and murdering people and displacing them is any but I re- reaction to it is it is wrong. The, the only thing that if you are looking f- through the Israeli eyes at this, I assume, Neve, is that they look at this and they say we must do something to suppress and end and destroy Hamas. There yeah. are limited options to do that. We don't care about world opinion. This has to be done no matter what. Yes, but at the same time, you know, I think Hannah mentioned it in her report there about the urban warfare aspect of it. And, you know, John Spencer is the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute, and he's talking about it and quoted in the Sunday Times talking about you can guarantee that Hamas military has stockpiled for itself. They have all the fuel, water, food, medical supplies they need to continue with this. So this is not going to let up. And yes, that that may be Israel's main focus, but then releasing information saying you need to evacuate northern Gaza at the moment, but then us seeing from people that they have no access to communication is, you know, it's it's just showing how difficult the situation is on the ground. It's showing how intense it is for the people and it's showing that, you know, this is modern war. And so it's a terrifying aspect. And from a humanitarian, like as Matt was saying, the politics of it, it's so difficult to understand. I think a lot of people who are looking at it are looking at the images of the these horrific images that are coming out, you know, the pictures of mothers cradling their, their children. It's so hard to look at. People are reacting from a humanitarian point of view. But when you look at what's happening, you know, Israel, I don't think are going to stop. And I feel like a ceasefire, although people are calling for it, is not on the horizon at the in the in the imminent few days. 
Text saying hostages are usually bargaining chips to be swapped during negotiations for imprisoned or captured soldiers. Bombing the area where they're being held is simply showing no regard for their lives. 53106 uh, at a cost of 30 cents if you want to get in touch or you can get us on WhatsApp 87 106. Coming up, we'll obviously talk more and get the details on what we know about the death of Matthew Perry. We're also going to be talking uh, after the break to representatives of Fine Gael and Labour in respect of the story that we haven't discussed so far, which is that of the argument about payments for Ukrainian refugees because the government is facing a choice, apparently, of having to reduce or deciding to reduce the amount of welfare to make Ireland a less attractive country. And the Mail is describing it, and I quote, welfare cut delays as politicians scramble to ensure they aren't the ones to shoot Bambi. So we'll be finding out who's going to be responsible for shooting Bambi uh, after the news. Before that, though, there is a story on the front page of the Sunday Business Post that just above the masthead that relates significantly to a um, very impressive piece of work that Matt has just produced. It is John Magnier outgunned. Read the inside story on the 18 million euro legal row over the Barn Estate. This is a big chunk of Tipperary that John Magnier wanted to buy, which puts him among the people who really own Ireland. Indeed, and he features because the Coolmore Estate has expanded massively in County Tipperary in recent years and a bit in North Cork as well. Some of the finest real estate in the country. But it's fascinating to see how somebody like John Magner, who for tax purposes is based overseas, will be limited in the amount of days that can be spent in Ireland each year, uh, has still wants to expand, but sometimes can't always get what he wants. And there is another person involved who now looks to have gazumped him in relation to an 18 million euro deal for a large estate of land and one of these very expensive luxury old houses, which cost an absolute fortune to maintain. A man who features actually, as it happens, in the pub section of Who Really Owns Ireland as one of those who has been buying up pubs over the last decade and whatever. Because this goes to an interesting thing about it. It's a bit like the thing of when you look at the level of money that is in deposit in Ireland. There is a tier of just vast wealth in this country and vast land holdings and vast corporate holdings. And buying land is something that a lot of them do on the basis that you can create a lot of new things, but you can't create new land. There's a finite amount of it and that gives it a certain value. The value may oscillate, but over time it tends to go up. Well, if you want to get the details of who are... How many in total, by the way, do you have in uh, Who Really Owns Ireland? How many people in yeah. business? God, I have no idea. There's about 400 pages, though, so you can imagine there's quite a lot of uh, different people in there. Well, I, I had the pr- pleasure of being at Matt's back book launch during the week and his editor was talking about the sheer uh, challenge of going through how detailed all of the research was behind it, which fits in the pattern, like Who Really Runs Ireland and like the Maximalist. But it's still easy it, to read. Of course, <laughs> and entertaining, and a page turner and all always the rest. Always selling, of it. always selling. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much. Likewise, big thank you to Breeder Ben, uh, co-founder and communications director for Unique Media, and Neve Mar, creative director uh, at the Journal.ie. The Anton Savage Show, brought to you by PwC, Sunday mornings from ten on News Talk.